Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Uh, travel more. It's good for you. I guess that's a kind of a fucked up thing to say coming out of COVID, but <laughs> you know, now's the time. Get back on it. Get vaccinated. Get out there and travel and experience other things. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. This week's episode is a story about curiosity, saying yes to opportunities, not fearing living somewhere new, and relishing challenges. Koi Eeks, co-founder of Gamma Brewing, located just outside Copenhagen, Denmark, tells us how he left his native North Carolina for a country he'd never been to, how he found brewing, and the importance of collaboration as an avenue for better understanding his new surroundings and profession. Koi's journey continues stateside, where he will open a new collective arts facility in New York City. Let's dive and get heavy. Koi, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you with us. Thank you. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where your sort of interest in science came from? Uh, yeah, so I grew up in uh, Durham, North Carolina, um, which is kind of a one of the oases of the South, in my opinion. Um, I guess my interest with, with science in, in a general sense came in uh, sophomore year chemistry in high school. I had this teacher, it was his first year teaching. Um, he was an old like oil ge- uh, geologist kind of guy, worked in industry for a long time and just retired and decided he would start teaching. And uh, I still keep in touch with him to this day. Uh, he's an awesome dude, he was a great teacher. And uh, even in my apathetic uh, teenage self, I did really well in the class and uh, did so with like very little effort. Um, And that would later on kind of uh, guide me towards science when I was in college. Um, At the time I was in art school, so science didn't really, um, wasn't at the forefront of my thought process. I also didn't think I was very good at school. So there was some self doubt issues there. But when I ended up going to college, I actually had this uh, odd experience where I was on a mushroom trip with uh, a good friend of mine and started, the wheels were turning about how my brain worked and kind of the analytical way that I thought about things. And at the time, I think I was a psychology business double major, which was pretty unfulfilling. Uh, Felt like I could learn that from a book and didn't really make sense to be paying for it. So kind of steered me towards uh, chemistry in that moment, I changed my major like the following Monday and, uh, the rest is history. How did you end up sort of in, uh, in graduate studies and, uh, how did that sort of unfold? Yeah. So I got, uh, I got pretty serious about school at that time and chemistry was challenging, but, um, ultimately like the right call for me, uh, I was really enjoying how it helped me build like my framework around things and understand, uh, you know, the intricate details of like how stuff works on a molecular level. So 
you know, I think I graduated 2011 and the job market wasn't very good. And there weren't a lot of jobs that were accessible to a BS in chemistry that I was into. So I think my, I think I was actually a senior when uh, one of my advisors told me that they actually pay you to go to grad school in the hard sciences. So that was, that was the reason I ended up going to grad school, but uh, not, not the best reason. Um, but I ended up going to a, into a PhD program at UNC and that, that was good. Uh, it was really challenging, but um, ultimately I figured out that like doing research every day was just kind of a little much for me. Um, so I actually only got my master's and then, and then moved on from there. Where did beer kind of uh, filter into this in some way? Was that something that uh, you found out as far as like the manufacturing of beer? Where did that sort of uh, come about? Yeah, so I I wasn't like, you know, super into beer um, at the time. I was just starting to get into it. And, you know, this is like drinking Sierra Nevada, Nevada Pale as like a a freshman in college and being like blown away by that. Right. Um, so I was by no means like a beer nerd or like super into it. Um, but I think just out of like desperation and opportunity, I started home brewing while I was in grad school. Um, you know, the money situation was tight and craft beer is expensive. So I was like, you know, I'll just make my own. And, uh, I had a buddy, um, good friend of mine that, uh, his dad, uh, was homebrewing all the time, not far from where we were staying. So uh, we'd go up there on the weekends and he kind of taught me how to homebrew. He was an engineer, so he had a very science background kind of approach to the process and all that and uh, helped me get my own stuff. And then I started doing that a little bit. But um, I think I only brewed like homebrewed like about 10 batches. Um, but that was kind of where the, the, the wheels started turning while I was in grad school. Um, about doing that professionally and it was just kind of this perfect storm of you know not being sure about doing research um, the funding getting cut um, a lot of the professors at the time were you know getting their their grants uh, turned away not funded and whatnot so the atmosphere was kind of grim it was just this perfect storm of things that kind of pushed me towards considering uh, making beer as like a a career option. Where did this convergence of brewing beer and your interest in chemistry kind of collide? Yeah, so I mean, for me, it was kind of the the best of both worlds. Um, I don't, my dad works with wood, you know, very hands-on. I think got a lot of that by osmosis. So I really enjoy working with my hands. And then, you know, having this like, you can, you can make brewing beer as uh, as much of a scientific experiment as you want. You can really delve into all these aspects. Um, you know, you don't need to have a good understanding of science or biochem in order to make good beer, but it does make it kind of more fun. It unlocks this other realm of possibilities and theories that you can kind of get into. So for me, it was kind of like engaging with the scientific part of my brain, but, you know, to a degree where I could digest it and like, not feel overwhelmed by it and engage with it uh, in the way that I wanted to. Um, and then at the end, you get a product that you can, you know, consume and enjoy. 
rather with you know hard science where it's like your experiments fail 90 95 to 99 percent of the time for a lot of people that end up in uh in brewing as well some of them like you have a good combination of like uh interest in the arts and literature and things like that as well and that's where uh, a lot of people enter as well as this mix of uh, having a scientific knowledge and also having interest in uh, arts and other things. Um, would you consider yourself to have been of that ilk as well? Yeah, I think those things go, you know, hand in hand. Um, I guess in yeah, my current capacity, uh, I also do some of the creative direction and working with an artist on label design and stuff like that. And you know, that, that stuff's all integrated into, into beer and as far as like the branding and you can kind of interact with that. Um, obviously music and all these kinds of things are also integrated. So that whole aspect, this bigger picture aspect around brewing was, uh, was intriguing as well. So, uh, you're, You've uh, you've been in grad school and uh, Denmark is calling. How did uh, how did you end up uh, over there? Yeah, so I, I referred to the perfect storm that kind of pulled me out of it. Um, so I think I was I had I had defended my master's thesis, which was two years into the five year program. So at that point, any time after that, if you decide to leave, that you you just get the master's. So. I was about a, I think I was about a half a year after that. And I really started to feel the, feel the weight of the lethargy and just kind of like, what am I doing? I'm not sure about it. At the time I was, uh, I was dating someone who the relationship started in North Carolina and then uh, she moved to Europe. I think her first year of the program was in Vienna, um, which wasn't, wasn't as enticing of a place to live. Um, but then she was going to move to Copenhagen and, uh, I was, you know, I didn't know much about Copenhagen. I knew that they like rode bicycles a lot, <laughs> but aside from that, I didn't know much. Um, so it wasn't really this like alluring, you know, thing, um, which is kind of funny in retrospect, cause it is such a, such an awesome place. Um, but I thought, oh, I could live there. There's a lot of biotech companies there. I could get a job with a master's perhaps, or. You know, of course, I knew of Mickler, so there was there was the beer thing too. It was kind of this dual opportunity. Let's just get over there and see what worked out. So I made what's in retrospect a very fortuitous but ill-advised decision to just move there with no visa, no job, not much money in my in my bank account whatsoever, and just kind of see what happened. There's all these forces kind of working together uh, that pushed me there wasn't as much of a pull as a push, I, I would say. And uh, so you were aware of what was happening in the beer world there and also biotech. Um, how did you uh, end up in beer over uh, over biotech? Was this sort of like the first opportunity that came about? How did you end up in the uh, in the beer world? And I, it was a it was at the retail level first, right? You were working in a, in a, uh, in a bar. Yeah. So, um, I kind of just was over there throwing anything against the wall just to see what would stick. So I was writing breweries, um, 
I was applying for jobs that I saw listed at a bunch of biotech companies. Um, and I think in my heart of hearts, I wanted to try the beer thing, but I was, you know, I just wanted a job. I mean, a job is the only thing that was going to anchor me over there as far as I could, uh, figure. So, um, yeah, the, the opportunity that I ended up getting was, um, was to work in a bar. Um, but, uh, mind you, I didn't have a visa, so we won't, we won't name that bar. Uh, but I was definitely working like what they call black money, which is just under the table, um, for quite some time. It, it ended up taking me about a, f a little over a year of living there before I got approved, um, for the green card ultimately. Uh, which was an arduous and expensive and laborious process, but uh, was designed that way for sure. And how, how was it settling into a new country like that with no pro? Well, you had the job, but it took you a year to get the green card. So was that a very strenuous time for you? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was tough. <laughs> I won't lie. It was probably the hardest year of my life, honestly. Um, not long after moving there, uh, that relationship ended at least temporarily. <laughs> um, but, uh, anyone who's familiar with Scandinavia can tell you the winters are, are pretty grim. Um, in Denmark, it's not like this oppressive cold, but it's more this just complete lack of sunlight, this long dreary winter. And I think that coinciding with me kind of just waiting for a green card to go through, you know, it's a lot of time to think and wonder like if what you're doing is insane, you know, like just, just so many thoughts of doubt and this just overbearing weight of, uh, feeling like you could, you know, get asked to leave the country at any point. As soon as the application doesn't go through, you gotta think like a couple weeks to leave the country. So it was a pretty stressful, period of time. I remember when I got the green card, I've never experienced just this feeling of such a weight being lifted and, you know, all these, all these opportunities then were, were, uh, available to me. So it was, it was tough, but it was a lot of, um, it was a, just a lot of waiting and not a lot of doing because I didn't have much money. I was just, I wasn't like, you know, I was spending more than I made. Um, you know, working under the table at that bar wasn't, wasn't providing a lot of, uh, income. So I think, I think honestly, when I, when I ended up getting the green card, I had between two and $3,000 to my name, which is not a lot <laughs> when the rent is about a thousand a month. So it came just in time. And through all that time, you were still working at this bar and you were, you were absorbing this culture of craft beer in Denmark. Uh, can you kind of tell us a little bit about this and what it taught you uh, while when you were in this transformative uh, year of your life? Yeah. Um, so I think, I, like I was saying, I didn't, I by no means knew a lot about beer. I just knew that I was interested in making it. So a lot of my education from the from the European side, a lot of, you know, met a lot of friends um, in that in that scene who, you know, introduced me to like Ken Jeong and stuff like that. Um, 
so I, I developed and grew in my understanding and uh, just experience of beer. Um, but I'd say I also noticed, uh, you know, the differences in terms of, you know, how, how beer is uh, kind of perceived, even in Denmark, which is a very progressive beer culture, craft beer culture, at least. Um, it was, it was quite different from the U S and in this whole sense that like craft beer moved laterally, it didn't grow organically within Europe. So there was, there were some differences in, in that regard. Um, but yeah, overall it was, it was a good experience and, um, being around beer and around people that were into beer kind of fostered this, uh, this kind of assuredness that the beer was where I wanted to be. And I think the time frame that you were doing all of this was pretty important and fortuitous is a good word for it. Uh, you know, like landing in the right place at the right time. This was really sort of like the third wave of craft when you had uh, an explosion of interest uh, enough to begin fueling local breweries to form there, a strong like import culture, and then a strong export culture from America. So there were like all these things sort of like uh, coming together uh, and converging in uh, in Denmark. So it must have been like a, a pretty exciting exciting place. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, I want to latch on to something that you mentioned and you were talking about uh, lateral growth and organic growth of like a beer scene. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the innovation in America coming out of craft beer, it was piece piecewise. Right. And then you get to a certain level there and then it's big enough to where people are taking notice on an international scale. Um, and then that's the starting point for anywhere else. They're going to match what's kind of being done in real time. So, you know, their, their day one is, is really however many years ahead of, of starting off. So, um, that innovation just, just happens faster and I think transferred more rapidly. Um, in that sense and the growth and the understanding of beer that comes along with that, you know, in a lot of ways had to catch up, right. Where, whereas it happened in the U S you know, at a certain pace that everyone's kind of experiencing in real time, uh, these people who have been drinking macro lager, like Tubor Carlsberg are getting Imperial stouts and like IPAs all of a sudden. So it, that was a big jump, right. Whereas like having like anchor steam and then like a pale ale, right. Just doing it that way. So it was interesting. Um, and I think, uh, even in the last like few years, I've seen it kind of the, the general opinion towards a lot of different beer styles and craft styles, um, the, the acceptability of it and just kind of the, um, the acceptance of it in a broad sense has grown. It's, it's not nearly as niche as it was there, but at the time when I got there, I think craft beer was still extremely, extremely niche. And it was a, a, a very small network of people who were, who were kind of into it relative to the United States where it's commonplace. I mean, this, this whole idea of like a beer bar is not really a thing in the U S like any 
bar that's kind of worth its weight, like he's going to have some of those options, right? Um, so that is not the case uh, in a lot of places in Europe. You know, Heineken and Tuborg and Carlsberg own a lot of the taps at bars. So truly it was a, you had to go to a craft beer bar or something akin to that to get those selections. So I think that's still still kind of the case, but it's it's gotten better. I think those places were very special uh, for Americans that were traveling there because those were also uh, pretty international places in cities like Copenhagen where like you'd meet a lot of expats and you'd meet a lot of travelers and you could learn a lot very quickly um, in conversation with people behind the bar or with your neighbors. Um, and so, and so uh, like um, did being caught up in sort of uh, being in that fabric uh, help you get connected with the, with the beer scene? And uh, in a way, did you find being an American was helpful in navigating the beer world that you were interested in because there's, a certain level of acceptability and interest in what happens in the U.S. and Scandinavia. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, it had no bearing on me as a person, you know, the kinds of opportunities I got. It was more just like, oh, he's American and he knows beer. So that was just outright a, a leg up, I think, um, having that having that advantage. But um, I... I can't say that I interacted with a lot of Americans there. Uh, a lot of the places I was were predominantly Danish, uh, Danish speaking folks, but you know, the more international places uh, like the Mickler tap rooms and such, I'm, I was told, you know, those are, those are the places that it's just people from like everywhere, like on a given night, it's, it's maybe only 50% Danes in there. So. I remember visiting the basement bar, uh, McKellar basement bar when I was in Copenhagen. And I think the bartender spoke like three or four languages there. Um, and you know, as you said, it was just a slew of different people from all over Europe and all over the world, which was really cool to see. So, uh, from your time in Copenhagen, how has the beer scene in Scandinavia, uh, changed and been viewed by, uh, travelers who have gone there? I think it's very highly regarded. Honestly, it, it seems like a place that is an, is a must see on like many European beer tourist cities up there with, you know, for different reasons like Belgium and Germany. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely a lot, a lot of it can be owed to the, um, the path that was paved by Mickler and that beer festival. Um, Mickler's beer festival is just, it's one of the best in the world. And that I think really kind of adds this, uh, this validity and status to Copenhagen as a, as a beer city. So give us sort of like a, a timeline, a little bit of when you sort of land over there and then when you start, you start, uh, brewing at Olsnigan. Yeah. So, um, if I don't. I think I arrived in Denmark uh, early August of 2014. I had been backpacking around Europe in, before landing there, but I think that's actually when I landed there. And it wasn't until, like I said, a little a little over a year after that that I got the green card. 
And uh, it was during, it was just immediately after that, um, I had the job waiting for me at Usnegan. And um, may have just, I, have, I was already helping a little bit um, as like a volunteer at the brewery, but that was kind of the timing worked out. And uh, from that point on, I was doing pretty much all, if not all of the, all of the brewing there. In those early days, did you feel like uh, you were utilizing a lot of your science background uh, when you were brewing? And can you kind of guide us through what those early beers were tasting like? Yeah, man, if I can remember, I think we were doing a lot of like West Coast IPA and Saison's and Stouts and whatnot. Um, You know, at the time, I think for the first few months, I was just kind of making it all make sense. Um, I think pretty quickly I got kind of handed the head brewer role, um, way quicker than I had any, uh, business, uh, doing that. But I think in the beginning I wasn't making a lot of the recipes. So these were like, you know, pretty, pretty caramel forward, very bitter front side hop additioned, uh, hoppy beers. I mean, the uh, the rest of the beers we made were were you know true to style in some sense but um that was that was kind of what we started out brewing and i think i think my <clears throat> my understanding of how to make beer i found out very quickly that from home brewing was pretty non-existent um so i did a lot of reading and i digested a lot um i had a lot of you know i was doing all the brewing so was constantly trying things and and getting feedback through trial and error um i was working on a very very manual kit which uh, which was a really difficult kit to work with but i think it was really valuable because it put me very close to what i was doing i could like see everything happening it wasn't there was no button hitting or anything like that. If something went wrong, you were close to it and could understand it. So, um, my, my science background, the thing that really did for me was really allow me to be self-taught and to understand what was happening. Um, you know, we, we talk about these like black boxes a lot, you know, just this kind of thing that it works and it does this thing and we don't know why or how, um, it kind of shed light inside a lot of those black boxes. So I could understand, oh, if the yeast isn't, you know, happy. Well, I did a lot of research with like growing bacterial cultures. So, you know, I know the kinds of things that make these these uh, bugs happy. So it was a lot of just stuff like that. Um, understanding water chemistry, you know, all the minutia of it really helped me like engaged with it, what I was doing, and also um, grow and understand like through books and, you know, reading online and all kinds of stuff. So it definitely just helped the uptake um, of the understanding of brewing um, to happen faster. You feel like um, as a brewery, it was a an attempt to try and follow what was going on in the U.S. with these heavy bitter hop profiles with the rich caramel flavor profile, or was it trying to um, shoot into something new for what was going on in the beer scene at the time? You know, those original recipes that I was brewing, I can't really speak to, but um, 
that was definitely how I started out. And it, I mean, that was what I had as a basis to work from. And that framework is pretty narrow. So when you have it to yourself to do, you can kind of suss out like the things that you're tasting that you think you do like and things you don't. But, you know, when you when you don't know what you're doing and you only have one way of making beer, like you're wondering crazy stuff like is making an IPA with no caramel malt okay? <laughs> you know, I was like wondering <laughs> stuff like that, which is ridiculous. But I remember, I remember like, you know, that was one of the first recipes I did was just like, what if we did an IPA with, with all Pilsner malt, you know, just, and to me, I was like, so unsure about that. I was asking people, what do you think? Like, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I knew I wanted this, uh, this profile that was easy, clean, drinkable and showcase the hops. And I, I wasn't getting that from a lot of the beers, um, that were really heavy on like the caramel malt. So, I think that was definitely the direction I was heading in at the time, but you know, you're, you're trying to make stuff that's inspired by the things that you've tasted that you really liked. Right. And you're trying to get closer to that. Um, you know, once after some time you get to that, you start thinking about things that maybe you haven't even tasted that you, you want to try to emulate. Um, but that, at that point I was just trying to make good beer and stuff that I myself would want to drink. Um, and there wasn't much more thought into it than that, honestly. Cool. And so you, uh, move on to, uh, form, uh, form gamma with, uh, with some folks that you had kind of met along the, along your, uh, along your journey. And, uh, these beers were a little different than what was happening, uh, at, uh, Ulsnigan and, you know, the, the Ulsnigan profile may have been, uh, you know, a little bit of a product of its time, uh, or maybe even of the time that those beers were constructed, uh, originally and that you were kind of recreating over time. And so like, uh, when you started with Gamma, it was decidedly different and it was a little edgy for the time frame. Uh, as far as what those beers were, and it looked a little bit to uh, to the states, and what was like super cutting edge in Europe from a contemporary craft standpoint. Um, like, uh, how uh, how did you kind of come to the conclusion that that was what you wanted to do, and that those recipes were what you wanted? Yeah, so you know, I had to kind of back up a little bit. Um, very shortly after working for Usnegan, um, I think around the time that I got my visa, like maybe just before, uh, they had gotten this big brewery uh, in a bankruptcy deal. And it was like this, I mean, this brewery was, it was big, it was a lot of space there, but I'm talking like duct tape on fermenters, just the most Frankenstein, like crazy. I mean, that's like how I started. I was like, you know, this doesn't seem right, but you know, I don't know. Uh, but that's kind of like the situation that we came into. And then uh, one of the owners there um, had this idea to make it like a collective, right? So um, it's a nice idea, right? Uh, to have this like shared space. Um, so we had he, he gave me the opportunity. And again, like kind of the, the theme of, uh, of my career in brewing is, uh, being given opportunities. I had no business being given. Um, and one of those was the ability to start a brewery 
a few months after beginning to brew beer on a professional level. So the idea was to bring a couple other breweries in, share the expenses of this place and uh, make the wheels turn, right? So yeah, uh, we actually started Gamma before I even had a green card, which is pretty crazy. So at that time, you know, I'm developing recipe uh, later on, I'm developing recipes for Lusnegam, but I'm also, you know, it was one of those things where we would have a day off or come in on a weekend and we had, we, we bought a fermenter. That was how it started. Um, and we just thought, well, if we fill it once a month, keg it, keg it off and, and sell it to bars, you know, if, if we can do that, maybe it makes sense. It'll be a fun little hobby. Right. And so those beers were just me trying whatever new idea I had been thinking about that I wasn't trying with Usnegan. So the inspiration and the the ideas for those was was really not uh you know, you I think a lot of people we Alexi, we've talked about this a bunch, but um the idea of starting a brewery and not having any kind of purpose with it and intention the days of that are, are kind of gone. I mean, it's still happening, of course, but that kind of, that kind of lack of intention is not needed. And that's, that's exactly what was happening at the start of Gamma. There was, there was no intention. It was just this fun hobby. And so you kind of figure that out uh, as we went. We still are figuring it out, to be honest with you. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Koi Eeks in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra that I want to share. Live music's back. The first Scorched Tundra Presents show is taking place on Saturday, September 4th at the Empty Bottle, featuring in the company of Serpents, Hive, and Roman Ring. You can find tickets at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our growing Discord community. Thanks for this moment, and back to our interview with Koi Eeks. So you're uh, you're making beer on this kit that you know has uh, some interesting quirks to it and that um, you've fitted to best suit you based on what you're able to do, and it's out in the woods, and you're in Copenhagen, and you have, uh, as you sort of alluded to earlier, uh, all these breweries that are coming from all over the world to go to this festival in Copenhagen. And they all want to brew collaborations. And at, at a certain point, there were only so many breweries in Copenhagen to do that. So um, did you ever feel insecure about a brewery of stature and of note? Because there's so much hype that goes into uh, the beer scene in Copenhagen about the rock stars of beer. I mean, it's a scene that's built on a rock star. So that's where a lot of this kind of comes from. So when you're bringing other half or cloud water out there, they may, you know, like they may know because they've brewed in all kinds of situations in the past in some way too. But uh, were you ever a little reluctant to, to have them go out there and what kind of role did, collaborations play in your the growth of your knowledge uh yeah it was embarrassing like straight up uh i always made it 
made it a point if I was having beers with them like the night before or just they're coming to do a collab, I'd be like, I'd make them very aware of how bad I knew uh, that brewery was. Because <laughs> I think I think if they had shown up and I had just not said anything about it, they'd be like, what the hell is going on here? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people understand, like, yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can, like, get into making beer. But the other side of that was that, well, they had had our beer, they were willing to do a collab. So a lot of times it was like, I can't believe you guys are making beer this good on something this terrible. So there's kind of two sides to it. Um, and yeah, like doing collaborations was, was a great opportunity to kind of, you know, break out of these very simplistic, um, you know, kind of methods to brewing beer that, that I had. So I'm a very like, what could go wrong kind of person. So I'm always thinking and trying to protect myself from like these variables of just like, you know, how could this not work or will this be too much? So I think, you know, proposing like a big dry hop and then being like, ah, just double that, you know, uh, stuff like that was just like, whoa, okay, well, can we do that? And they're like, yeah, why not? And I was like, I don't know. I've never done that. And also putting that amount of hops in a dry hop seems like a cardinal sin, uh, both in terms of like profit and yield. Um, just things like that. And, and that ultimately changed the entire way I made IPAs for the most part. So um, stuff like that, just kind of like having the validation of someone just being like, well, I did this and it, it worked out. Um, just kind of pushing those boundaries. Um, that was that was like the, the fun part of doing collaborations and I think, you know, I received such openness and kind of help along the way um, from the bigger guys that, um, you know, I, I try to be as like forthcoming and open about what I'm doing, kind of, you know, keep that, keep that energy afloat. Um, Cause I definitely, I definitely got that and it helped, uh, it helped me to expand my, um, my, my risk levels and just like what I was willing to try. Um, so that was, that was great for sure. And, uh, f do you feel as though the presence of these brewers from abroad very regularly, uh, helped level up the scene in Copenhagen and the, uh, the know-how and ability of the, of the brewers there, or was it also like exposure because of, you know, the fact that, Denmark does have a really good scene for imported beer and also not in this isn't meant to take away from the skills and the ability of people that are on the ground there making the beer. Um, but I mean, these are all sort of very interesting factors coming together. Um, and it's hard, I guess we can't really attribute it to one thing, but I guess, um, did, uh, the presence of all these brewers help level things up or level up, uh, the, um, exposure and the abilities of the and the confidence of the brewers in Copenhagen year over year as a result of this like marquee event happening and people coming there uh yeah definitely and I think even I think predominantly outside the scope of a collaboration uh that kind of thing is occurring um you know I, I think co collaborations are on a spectrum right you sometimes you have people where 
they barely even approved the recipe, you know, they're coming to hang out with your boss or do whatever, you know, and you're just making, you're just making a beer, uh, for the sake of it. Right. So there's those kind of service level collabs that are just about hanging out and having an excuse to burn the company card and, and whatnot. I mean, I've re that's the reality for, for a lot of people, but I had a lot more meaningful. I had some very meaningful collaborations where it went back and forth, like 40 to 60 emails, you know, and those were, those are really cool. But I, you know, I kind of just feed off of what the other person's putting out and, and just see where we land with that. But I think, you know, just trying someone's beer at a festival and being like, whoa, what did you do there? And just kind of having that, that dialogue, you know, I'd taste something that I was like, well, this is something I've never tasted before. You know, I really like this, this, and this about this beer. Like, how did you do that? And, you know, like people tell you and, and you can try it, you give it a go. Um, so I think a lot of that just, just bumping shoulders at beer festivals even um, really kind of uh, helped and and built that. And I think that's just, you know, that's the craft beer scene in general. It's just this very collaborative, um, open to sharing information and whatnot. And that was, that was definitely an integral part of, of my development as well. And then, you know, that internal dialogue of like, well, I wonder what's happening like with the polyphenols and like the terpenes or whatever, you know, just thinking about like how theorizing how those, those taste profiles came through based on, on those methods. And then you hit the brewery and run another experiment, you know? I think that when you're a brewer, you're often in an environment with the same people very frequently and that uh, it's, it's challenging to innovate and to, uh, question your methods when ever there's an aspect of rigor and there's an aspect of doing the same thing over and over again. So to have people that are coming in with a lot of different ideas and in mass more or less, um, can be, uh, can really be helpful and can help someone grow, uh, professionally, specifically in a like manufacturing sort of environment like brewing is, um, now, uh, for you, just to kind of uh, put a bow on your experience in uh, in Denmark a little bit, um, was it challenging sort of uh, owning a company there or being a part owner of a company there? Um, and, uh, you know, what was uh, like the sort of last bit of your experience there like? Yeah, so, you know, ultimately, just to give a little like... Uh, background on on how it all came to be uh, as complicated as it is i worked for listening on and was given the opportunity to start gamma um two of my buddies um that i had known who were beer tenders um were also interested so we ponied up our money and bought that fermenter and shortly after that um i was hired by dry and bitter to be the head brewer um so I took that opportunity. Um, meanwhile, we're all working under the same roof. So never changing brew kit, just moving around. So um, at some point, you know, we all kind of matriculated through Dry and Bitter, um, the owners of Gamma, um, and just decided that ultimately we were gonna do Gamma full time. So fast forward to, I guess this is two years ago. Um, 
my visa is ending. It also doesn't allow me to be self-employed or it allowed it. It just didn't allow you to renew it once you become self-employed. So um, we're all just doing Gamma full-time. Um, and then recently in the past year or so, we kind of separate uh, and get our own brewery. One that we started from scratch, put the money in, did it right um, and all that. But you know, that was recently before, while we were still brewing at the, uh, the original space, um, you know, I, I was thinking about coming back to the U S I was feeling a little restless. Um, and, uh, also, you know, I wasn't going to be able to renew my visa. So I knew, I knew within a year I had to find a job. So, uh, it was a good chunk of time to do so. Um, so, right as gamma is kind of getting going and 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 doing well i moved to new york and took a job with collective arts to open a brewery here in brooklyn um and yeah covid covid's had uh, other plans about that um but that was kind of how how i ended up back in the states and left denmark yeah it alone is quite the move but let alone under the circumstances uh, that would be uh, coming shortly after you start there. Um, can you kind of tell us um, just your experience with collective arts uh, from, you know, getting straight uh, from Copenhagen back, landing in New York, starting at collective arts, and then what it was like being onboarded during the pandemic and how that project is moving at this point? Yeah. So, um, I moved back to New York in uh, the end of August of 2019, so almost two years ago. So this is before the pandemic. Um, there were, at that point, already delays with the construction of the space. Um, so I was doing a lot of traveling. I actually like went back to Europe shortly after coming back and saying goodbye to everyone. I got sent back over to Copenhagen um, for a bit. So, you know, I was just kind of just being useful where I could. I was doing a lot of the the travel for the company with regard to beer festivals um, and collaborations. And um, and then, yeah, COVID happened. I was like, you know, heavy into travel, had more travel planned when that all happened. I was actually in Hamilton working at the Collective Arts uh, Mothership Brewery. Um, I was worried I wasn't going to be able to get back to New York. It was like early, early to mid March, probably about like the 10th or 11th. I think I flew back. Um, and I think the day after I got back, one of my roommates got really sick and, uh, it, he ended up having COVID, but they weren't testing anyone for it at the time. So he tested negative for the flu. So I, I hid in my room, uh, for three days, I had a ticket to DC um, for a work trip that got canceled, but I still had the ticket. So, um, I got out of New York <laughs> and was away from that, but you know, everything stopped at that point. Um, it was, it was just a freeze and we, we you know, everyone knows that the, the trajectory of that went. like we thought a couple weeks and then that turned into a month and so on and so forth. Um, so fast forward to to now, 
And, you know, we're still dealing with the repercussions of, of how COVID hurt uh, the construction. I, I won't get into the details because uh, it deals with like the, the landlord and whatnot, but um, it's, it's, been, it's been hard on a lot of people, especially New York real estate developers. Um, so finishing that project, we're still, we're still waiting on it. Um, we're hopefully gonna get some good news soon, but it's been at a standstill um for quite a while now so right now my role is you know do what i can when i can i went to toronto during the pandemic to open um their brew pub there so that was i had you know that was like uh last uh, fall i did that so now that travel is starting to be allowed again it's uh it's now it's collabs and and beer festivals if they're if they're going to start happening so that's that's my role kind of in a nutshell it's uh, been a weird one so as a result you've maybe learned uh, a bit more about the industry because you haven't been in a brewery for so long which is a position you're uh i wouldn't say foreign to but that's a little different for you it's odd um yeah, I feel like I've I've kind of missed a lot of things. I'm like, oh, what new hops are people playing with? You know, it's like, you know, there's a, there's new stuff happening which I'm not directly involved with. So I I mean I hear about it and and all that, but it is like kind of taking this like pause or hiatus from from making beer. And I and I really hope to to make beer again soon, and I'm sure that I will at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean I. I'm not going to sit here and complain about the pandemic because the truth is that, you know, I've been extremely fortunate. Um, you know, collective arts has been extremely good to me and like kept me on when they could have easily let me go. Um, so I think for me, um, it's just kind of been like a, you know, uh, just a pause that like I'm itching to, to put hit play on and start making beer again. But, yeah, it's been strange. I think everyone can agree on that. It's been strange in different ways, but overall, like I'm, I feel extremely fortunate. I guess, uh, you know, sort of in closing here, uh, you've had a lot of experience brewing in a lot of different places and you've been able to sort of view the beer scene as it is in the States through a number of different lenses, which is kind of unique, but you are one of us at the same time too. And so I'm just yeah. kind of curious as to um, what your sort of biggest takeaway was of that uh, interesting experience of uh, seeing beer culture and seeing, uh, you know, the manufacturing of beer and everything through that sort of unique lens. You know, that that's a tough, that's a tough question to kind of, uh, precipitate down into a concise answer um i you know i had no yeah of course like my i'm american i you know experienced beer uh in in the beginning as an american um but the entirety of my brewing almost almost all of it has happened in europe so you know i don't i can't convert between barrels and gallons, you know, like I, I, you know, I'm completely metric. Um, 
coming back to the U.S. has been strange in the sense of just like these little details, but um, I don't I don't think there is any like kind of overarching. Yeah, I'm gonna need to pause and think about that to be honest with you. I mean, there's just so much to say, right? Um, it's a it's a really huge experience to kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's also challenging to articulate because, like you're there's the number of kind of cultural lenses that you're looking through uh distorts the picture so much that it's like almost not even the same thing that you're looking at right yeah like i have no for those five years i don't have another lens for comparison because i was in that right mm -hmm. i was only experiencing that one side of it you know i still I still like, there was a lot of, you know, I, it was a funny thing. It happened to me with my life in general, you know, like I, before moving to Europe, I was like, had no money. So I wasn't traveling. I had been off the East coast one time and that was to visit like a grad program in Oregon for a weekend. So my experiences in the U S were pretty limited, but then you know, I went to Europe and like, yeah, you're going to beer festivals, traveling to all these different countries you know, experiencing all of this, I think on like a personal level, that experience was like, you know, equally ineffable, but, uh, you know, also more so meaningful, but I, I have no idea how to compare it to what those five years would have been like if I had just taken a job in North Carolina and, and done that whole thing. It's, it's hard, it's hard to really like flesh that out, honestly. Mm -hmm. But it was, I mean, I can, I can just say that it was, an incredible experience. Um, I grew a lot from it. And, you know, I, as I was talking about earlier, was having all this doubt and this, you know, regret of just being like, what did I, what did I do? You know, why am I doing this? And, you know, just being too embarrassed to go home with my tail between my legs after making this like grand leap. Um, so really uh, just sticking it out due to stubbornness, but in, in the long run, I mean, like what an incredible experience I got to have. And also coming out of it, you know, with, uh, with having this great, um, fun brewery, uh, and gamma with, uh, with some really good friends and getting to see that live on, um, is really amazing. I think I'm actually heading there in a couple of weeks, um, to see our new brewery for the first time. So. But it'll definitely be like a full circle kind of experience. I'm really, really looking forward to that. Walk us through a little bit about that, uh, the the new facility and um, what is in store for Gamma in the near future. Yeah, and so I think I actually forgot to answer this part of the question a while ago. Um, but the experience of starting a brewery in Denmark was overall like, extremely easy and I, I say that being the non-danish speaker who didn't have to deal with all the bureaucratic stuff um shout shouts out to Jakob on that one uh who started and it continues to run our company um from a logistics and managerial standpoint um Denmark is regarded as one of the easiest places to start a business um a lot of, I mean, having that perspective of just like the day-to-day -day life and how things are just a lot easier and make a lot more sense there. 
I think translates into that. Um, but all in all, it was kind of like annoyingly easy, you know, having the perspective of like starting that brewery, having that new space get built out during COVID. I think all in all, it, it didn't even take like, I, I believe it was like six or so months from signing of the lease to getting that brewery up and running, um, maybe closer to nine. I'm not exactly sure, but it happened very quickly. And then seeing the other side of it here in New York, which I know New York is like its own beast, but just like the difficulties with real estate here and just getting things done. Um, it's, it's kind of night and day. And I think that's true of a lot of places in the U S uh, to be honest. So it, it really is like in the grand scheme of things, very, a very good place to start, um, start a business in general. Um, but yeah, having that, having that new space, um, is it's been incredible to watch that come to fruition from afar. Um, and it's also been extremely hard to watch it happen from afar. So, uh, it's both like a, it's a really exciting thing. And I, you know, it's something that we've wanted for so long, um, to kind of, it's something we've dreamed about and talked about, um, for years since we kind of could see that Gamma was was going to be a sustainable thing from the time that we all went full time um, to see it finally play out and to have this space that is what we've always wanted. And, you know, we always talked about doing it the right way the first time and and not, you know, doing anything half-assed. So I think they did a, an amazing job selecting all the equipment, the space, the materials, um, it's just, uh, it's a, it's a really beautiful brewery and, uh, I'm really, really excited. We've only been in there for a few months, but I'm really excited to, to see what we're able to do there. It's going to be fun. Uh, Koi, thanks so much for joining us. Do you have any sort of, uh, parting thoughts for, uh, for our audience? Uh, travel more. It's good for you. I guess that's a kind of a fucked up thing to say coming out of COVID, but <laughs> you know, Now's the time. Get back on it. Get vaccinated. Get out there and travel and experience other things. 